if, if you're getting familiar with uh, my preaching, you'll notice that there's, there's two themes you're going you're gonna to hear regularly in my, my sermons. One is that by faith in Jesus Christ, you will receive complete forgiveness of your sins and cleansing. The other one is that God still requires obedience. Um, and uh, I've been known for saying this line, maybe not here as much, but in other places, we're called to go where God tells us to go, to do what God tells us to do, and to say what God tells us to say. And we see that that's a theme throughout Scripture, right? We, we know the story of Jonah, where God tells him to go and do and say something, and Jonah says, I'm not going to do that or say that or go there. And that just does not work out well for Jonah. And so it just dishonors God. It makes a mess out of things. But, but here's what's, what's been interesting is, as, as I kind of encourage people to have this, like I'm giving my life to you, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to go, do, say what you tell me to do, um, there's sometimes problems that come as a result of that. And, and one of the things I, I've noticed over the years is that um, we'll talk to people and they'll say, okay, I, I'm, I, I'm yours. I'm, I'm going to go where you tell me to go, do, say, I'm going to do that. But then they, they almost freeze up and get paralyzed thinking, what if I mess it up? What if I don't go where God tells me? What if I don't? Like, what if God wants me to go here and I go here? Like, am I going to mess it up? And they start to get so anxious about maybe messing it up that they don't do anything and they kind of live their life just in fear of not actually doing what God has called them to do and almost afraid that they're going to mess up God's plan for their life. And uh, to quote a fairly popular meme that I've been seeing going around on social media. Uh, you, my beautiful friend, are not that powerful. <laughs> right? You are not powerful enough to mess up God's plan for your life. And that's true. And yet, I've also seen people take that truth and live in a way that's not helpful either. And I've heard people say, well, if I can't mess up God's plan for my life, then I might as well do whatever I want to do because God's going to just make it all right in the end. So I'll, let's just eat, drink, and, and be merry. Or I've also heard people say, and this is probably the one I hear more often, I hear people say, well, if I can't mess up God's plan in my life, I'm just not going to do anything. God will just figure it out. He'll take care of it. Now, nobody ever says it that bluntly. Uh, usually it's kind of couched in faith, like, I just trust God so much that I'm not going to do anything and trust God to take care of it for me. And when I hear people say that, I don't know why I'm quoting things, but this line comes into my mind, another famous quote, maybe some of you will recognize it. When you use that word trust, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Anybody princess bride quote? Um, here's, here's what we're going to... We're going to learn something, I think, really important through the story of Judah and Tamar. And we're going to learn, on the one hand, that God punishes wicked and rebellion, right? We, we see him do it directly in, in this story. And... and 
so we're not, we're not free to say, like, well, I just trust God to use my wickedness and rebellion, so I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. We're going to realize that God, God punishes it. Um, we also see in this story that God punishes people's refusal to take action and do what he's told them to do because they're afraid. Even if they try to use it in the word, like, well, I just trust God. No, he, he actually punishes people for that as well. But we also see that God works powerfully in the midst of all of our failures and poor decisions that have caused just a mess in our lives and the lives of people around us. And we're going to see very clearly that despite God's people's complete unfaithfulness and failures, they still haven't been able to mess up God's plan. And one of the really powerful things is we're going to see that God's so powerful that he can both discipline rebellion and wickedness and carry out his plan at the exact same time. And, I, and, and Don kind of hinted at this already. You know, the story we're looking at today kind of goes back in history a little bit from last week, right? Last week, we kind of covered the whole scope of Judah's life, from the first time we hear about him to the last time we hear about him living. And, and this time, we kind of, I wanted people to see this arc of Judah's life from his, how terrible he was at the beginning, and we see God doing a work on him. And now this time we kind of step in, and this is an interlude. Joseph's off in Egypt, and we find out what's going on with Judah, the one who sold him into slavery. And, uh, and last week I had made this comment, right, that, that it was through Judah's trials and difficulties and hardships that God was at work in him, shaping him, transforming him. But it's important to realize that the hardships and the trials and the difficulties of Judah's life were not, it's, this is not a Job type of a situation. The, the trials and the difficulties and the suffering in Judah's life are a direct result of his unfaithfulness. And so Moses, as he tells this story, like we get uncomfortable, right? And Don says, the Bible does use some euphemisms and then the, to kind of soften it. And uh, then translators also use extra euphemisms to soften it because we kind of get like, whoa, what's going on here? And, and the reason is to show that Judah is a mess. Um, he's a mess. And this whole family situation is a mess. And, and there's a reason for that, and you'll find out at the end. Um, you know, last week I said the very first words we hear out of Judah's mouth is him making this proposal to sell his brother into slavery and make a buck and get rid of him at the same time. And then the very next thing, after he sells his brother into slavery, this is what we hear about Judah. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And so, kind of the trajectory we see of Judah's life is, sells his brother into slavery, makes a big hunk of money. This is starting to sound familiar to a parable maybe Jesus told. Takes off and heads to a foreign land. Heads to Cana, marries a Canaanite woman, which is 
like one of the one things that he's been, they've been told, don't do that, right? Stay away from the Canaanites, and, if at, and, don't, and especially don't marry a Canaanite woman. Like this has been told like from the beginning of just keeps going through. Don't do that. And Judah goes, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go where I want to go, and I'm going to say what I want to say. I'm going to go here. I see a cute girl. going to marry her. I don't care what anybody else is say. This is what I'm going to do. And, and it seems like it works out for him for a little while. Right? He gets married, and we read, he took her, went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. Called his name Ur. She conceived again, bore a son. She called his name Onan. She again bore a son. She called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And, and this has all of the same kind of feel of when God blessed Leah, doesn't it? Like God blessed Leah and then she had son after son after son after son. And so you can almost picture Judah going, see, I knew I was right. I knew I could do this. I get married to this girl. We, we have son after son. God's blessing this. But he wasn't, and, and things turned sideways really quickly. And we see that all of Judah's sons, we don't hear much about Shelah, what his role in all of this, but, but Ur and Onan, they are just, they're, they're a mess, right? And you can maybe blame some of that on Judah's fathering. You, there's a lot of speculation, but either way, his children are a mess. And so, you know, Judah's trying to help pair his son up, so he gets a, a wife for Ur, and most likely he gets one from Canaan. So Tamar's probably a Canaanite woman as well. Marries her off to Ur, and then we read this. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. I mean, this is, right, we know about the flood where God you know, wiped the face of the earth, but this is the first time in the Bible we hear about God putting an individual to death for their wickedness. Um, we're not told what it is. We don't need to know what it is. We're just told that because of his wickedness, the Lord put him to death. And the Lord did it so quickly that he did it before they could have a son. They could conceive and have a son. So it was, it was pretty quickly that it happened, and that causes this problem in the family. Now, the oldest son doesn't have another son to, to put forth. And, and I'm sure most of you have kind of heard some of this from the law. This is, this is in Deuteronomy later. This isn't actually in place now, but this is how they functioned. If, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. But her husband's brother should go into her take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And I, I realize, like, for us, this whole practice just seems weird and kind of yucky, and, and most women in here are like, yeah, if my husband dies, I don't want his brother. <laughs> like, I didn't marry him. <laughs> But, but part of this is just, like, this was a really big deal for them. And, and you can hear it in the language. You're supposed to do this that his name wouldn't be blotted out. 
like completely removed from Israel, completely removed from his family. And there's a lot of like just practical reasons with family and finances and fields and money and care for the widow and all of that that's different now. But, but it's important to know that this was huge. This was to protect the name of the man who died and to protect not just him, but the family now and for generations to come. And so that's why Judah says, all right, Onan, well, you're, you're kind of next in line. Now go into your brother's wife, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring wouldn't be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. And to kind of like take a moment to realize what's happening in Onan's brain here, right? Because Ur was the firstborn. Ur was going to get the firstborn's inheritance. And now with Ur taken out of the picture, who gets the firstborn's inheritance? Onan. He gets the double portion. But if he provides a son for Ur, guess who doesn't get the double portion again? Onan. And so Onan's like, hey, I, I want this part of the inheritance for me, and I want it for my family, and so I'm not going to do what I should do. And in his greed and selfishness, actually all he does is just continue to take advantage of Tamar over and over and over again. Um, and God says, that's wicked in my sight. And so God puts him to death as well. So Shelah's next in line, and Judah's like, I see how this is working out. I, I don't want to put Shelah's life on the line, right? Judah's, Judah is so blind in all of this that he doesn't recognize that it was his son's wickedness that caused them to die. He blames Tamar, like she's the black widow, right? Anybody who gets around her dies, and so... Judah's blind to this, and so he like, refuses to take care of Tamar. She's, su- she's supposed to stay in his house. He's supposed to provide for her, care for her. And instead, he goes, you know what? Why don't you go back to your father's house? Like, out of sight, out of mind. Shayla's not quite old enough to get married to you yet, so someday we'll, we'll figure this out. And Judah knows full well He has zero desire, zero plan um, to take care of Tamar and and to fulfill his duties. He just kind of wants her gone, out of sight, out of mind. And we're kind of told, right, you you see in the story that, that in the midst of this, some time goes by. We're not told how long, but long enough time goes by that everyone's fairly clear that Judah's not going to do what he's supposed to do. And, uh, And then his wife dies, which has a lot, there's a lot of things that that causes, but one problem that causes is Judah's wife dies. He can't have a son now because he doesn't have another wife. And the only way that his line's going to continue is through Shelah, but he's refusing to give Tamar to Shelah. So what's going to happen? Like the line of Judah is about to die out right now. And it's going to be blotted out of the the. Uh, people of Israel. And in the midst of that, Judah makes another dumb, poor decision, right? He heads off to Timnah. And if that name sounds familiar, like nothing good happens in Timnah. (laughs) And he heads off to Timnah and 
sees what he thinks is a prostitute, in his mind is a prostitute, and he sleeps with her. And he wasn't planning on it because he doesn't have enough money, he doesn't have anything with to kind of pay for the prostitute, right? So it's like, this doesn't make anything better. I think it probably makes it worse, actually, that it's just impulse control, and he thinks, hey, this, let's do this. And so he, he sleeps with her, and, and I think part of what, something that doesn't really get mentioned in here, I think that makes it, like, sleeping with the prostitute's bad. But he thinks she's a cult prostitute, like a prostitute in a temple, which means not just any prostitute, but prostitution and where se- the sexual act is related to the worship of the God of the temple. So it's not even just prostitution, it's idolatry mixed in on this, that Judah thinks that's what he's doing in this moment. Like, it's, it's really messed up. It's bad move. Now, we know what Judah didn't know, right? That... Uh, It's not a temple prostitute. It's his daughter-in-law, Tamar, which we think, that doesn't make anything any better in my eyes. And that's okay. Right? So she's she's been off at her parents' place. She's been looking on from a distance, recognizing that, that Judah's not going to do what he said he was going to do. Or another way, he's not going to do what God has commanded him to do. He's not going to fulfill his covenant obligations. And yet, Tamar herself has some level of covenant obligations here, so she takes matters into her own hands. She heads off to Timnah, covers her face, dresses like a prostitute. I had initially wrote she entices Judah to sleep with her, but the reality is she doesn't. She just sits on the side of the road. Judah sees her. We don't even know, to be honest, if she went there with this in mind. Most likely she did, but we don't know. But she goes there, sits on the side of the road, Sleeps with Judah. And once the deed's done, we find out she's pregnant. She puts her widow's clothes back on, heads back to her father's house, right? Three months go by. People are going to find out. (laughs) They find out. They bring her to Judah and say, she's committed adultery. And Judah goes, let's give her the strictest penalty possible. We're not just going to stone her. We're going to burn her. And not only do we see, like, the total hypocrisy involved with that, but we also see this kind of sense in the back of Judah's mind, kind of like with Joseph, like, if we burn her, I get rid of this problem. I could find someone else to marry my son and move this line on. Um, not someone who's going to kill my son. And in the process of them hauling her off to be burned, she pulls out his signet ring, his cord, which is kind of like almost like a dog tag type of a thing in his staff and reveals that it was Judah who got her pregnant. And then Judah says this line that makes everybody cringe. She's more righteous than I since I didn't give her to my son, Shayla. That bothers people, right? Because how can she be righteous? She lied, deceived, Slept with her father-in-law? How can she be righteous? And, like, it doesn't sound righteous to me, and I could tell you, I'm not going to tell my kids to go do that. So, what's the deal? Like, what's, what's going on in this story? And, you know, I only have so much time. So we could talk later if you have more questions for me. 
But, but here's one of the things I think is really important to, to just keep in mind in the midst of this. On the one hand, the Bible never pretends like heroes or, or heroines are perfect. And actually, most of the time, the Bible shows that they've made a ton of mistakes. Um, and so, on the other hand, the Bible never discounts a hero or a heroine because of their mistakes. And so that allows us a couple of things. On the one hand, this story does clearly paint Tamar as the hero of the story. But that doesn't mean we have to look at everything she did and say, that was good. No, 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 no. She did a lot of stupid, unwise, unhelpful, unfaithful things in this story. And yet... We also don't have the option to say that she was unrighteous. And I want to say it again because it's our temptation. We don't have the option to say that she's unrighteous because the Bible says that she was righteous. At least more righteous than Judah. But in general, it's saying she was righteous. And so the question is, how do we understand that? And, and some of this is, is just some of the cultural stuff. But, but, but just understand some of her, her loyalty in this story. Uh, because she's, here she is brought into this family and she's been used and abused and taken advantage of from the beginning. And she could have easily like went back to her father's house and said, not my people, not my rules. I'm going to just go find my own Canaanite guy, raise a family, move on, never look back. But she didn't. She said, these are my people. <laughs> And what I think we'll see eventually, this is my God. And, and, and even in Israelite like law and understanding, what she could have done, it says, if your brother refuses to fulfill this vow, if, if you're, like your deceased husband's brother refuses to fulfill this vow, you can take him and anybody else who refuses to do that, bring him before the city, hit him with a sandal, and spit in his face. To show how shameful he is in front of the entire city. To show that they're taking advantage of you and they're not taking care of you. She could have done all of that. That was all what she could have done. And yet, she didn't. We see actually most of her actions throughout are, are actually trying to kind of protect the dignity and the name of this family that has taken advantage of her. And she is saying, no, these are my people. This is my God. I've made covenant promises. I've got covenant responsibility here. And I'm going to do what it takes to fulfill my duties to my God. And I'm going to risk my life to do that. And it didn't matter if it was her people. And one of the things that people don't like when I say this is, this is, this is the story of Ruth in Genesis. A foreign woman saying, I'm going to leave my homeland because you are my people and this is my God and I will be here to help move the line down the road. Which is interesting because guess who Boaz is born of? Perez, who's Tamar's son, who was born of this story. One of the 
commentators I read this week said this, God had promised Abraham and Jacob that they would have royal offspring from their own bodies. Of Jacob's 12 sons, Judah is singled out to carry on the royal lineage. Tamar, a wrong wife, right, a Canaanite wife, saves the family by her loyalty to it. And the four women in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, all come from outside of Israel and have a highly irregular, potentially scandalous marriage union. But because of their faith, God deems them worthy to carry royal seed. And I would say one of the things that Bruce Waltke misses is that she saves the family, but she saves more than that. She saves the world. Because not only would David come from her, but Jesus comes from Tamar. And if there's no Tamar, there's no Jesus. And if there's no Jesus, there's no salvation for anybody. And we get a glimpse into to Judah's life as well, because we talked about that last week. We see this kind of big moment in Egypt where Judah takes ownership and offers his life for his brother. And we see the turning point that kind of brings him to that happens here. He says, she's more righteous than I since I didn't give her to my son Shelah. And then we read, and he did not know her again. And that's Judah saying, I messed up bad. I'm confessing that and I'm repenting of it, which means I'm not doing that again. Um, And he shows us that when confronted with our sin, we don't say, well, God's just going to make it all right, I guess. We say, I've sinned against God and against man, and I confess it, I repent, and I turn from it. We see David do that, his son, with Bathsheba. And we see this being this turning point in Judah's life where it kind of sets him up to now be the leader of God's people, God's family in Egypt, and and where the royal line will come from him, which we'll talk about next week. But I've kind of pointed this already, like what's the wrong takeaway from this story? Here's the wrong takeaway. I can do whatever I want to do as long as I try really hard and, and whatever. And even I can do some bad and wicked things and God will just make it all right. He'll, he'll figure it out. He'll sort through it. I can just do that. That's the wrong attitude. That's the attitude of Ur and Onan. And that got them killed. Rather, the takeaway is, as you give your life to Christ... And you say, I'm all yours. All of me. And I'm going to go where you tell me to go. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. I'm going to say what you tell me to say. And you're going to do that. In the process of doing that, you are really going to mess up. Big time. And you're going to make a mess out of everything. And you're going to hurt people around you. And and you're going to dishonor God sometimes. And it's going to be a disaster. In the process of trying to honor God. And yet in the midst of that, we don't just give up and throw in the towel and live in fear and anxiety. We, when we mess up, we do what? We confess it. We repent it. 
of it. We're cleansed of it. We're forgiven of it. And God says, now get back up. Get back out in the game. Keep going after it. You don't live in fear of messing it up. You don't live paralyzed that you're going to mess it up. You just keep your eyes on Christ. You keep following him, committing to do whatever he's told you to do, knowing that when you do mess up, he'll cleanse you, forgive you, and you haven't messed up so bad as to mess up his plan for your life. So keep following him. And it really struck me that, you know, God's people were going to read this story while they're in Babylon. Right? They had messed up so bad that God kicked them out of the promised land and, and tore them out away from their families. Like, everything had become just a disaster. And, and they're wondering, like, have we messed up God's plan? They were punished for their rebellion And yet they're reading the story going, on the one hand, we haven't messed up God's plan. He's still going to do it. And on the other hand, when we mess up and when we fail, our response is to confess and repent and and turn to God. And for us, turn to Christ and be forgiven. And, And the reality is, none of us have that hope and confidence apart from Tamar. Because if Tamar hadn't done what she did, there would be no Jesus, which would be there to no salvation. And, and the Bible just gives us, right, that, that first three verses of Matthew just goes right, runs right to Tamar. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerubbabel, Tamar, the first woman mentioned in the Bible, in the New Testament. And it says, because of her, we have Jesus. Because of Jesus, we have salvation and forgiveness and hope and peace and freedom in this world. And so because of her and because of ultimately Christ, we don't have to live in fear of messing things up, but we can live by faith and confidence and hope in Jesus Christ. Let's come to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are, we are so thankful um, that we're not the ones in control. We confess that we often think we should be in control. We often try to be in control. We often think that we know better than you and that we can, should do whatever we want to do. And yet, Father, we see the mess that creates in the world and we see how that dishonors you. And so, Father, we confess that to you. We confess our own pride, our own arrogance, our own selfishness, our own rebellion and wickedness. Father, we confess that to you now, and we repent of it. We turn from it. And we pray that that you would not only just forgive us and cleanse us from these sins, but that your spirit would work in us and renew us and restore us and shape us to be your people that you would work in us so that we would live each day more and more by faith and trust, relying on you, that each day we would become more and more like you and go where you tell us to go and do what you tell us to do and say what you tell us to say. So, Father, do that work in us, that as we leave from here and as we go out into the world, that we would be your people in the world, that we would be lights, and that as we live and speak and act, that people wouldn't just see us, 
but they would see you working in and through us. And all God's people said, amen.